This is a reading from the book of Matthew. Um, let me find it. I had it marked. 21, okay. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. And when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the son. They <clears throat> Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will we do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Like I said, some weird readings in Matthew. It's the sort of thing I would only assign to my own mother. <laughs> uh, when we were reading through this passage in worship planning, some of the questions we were asking around it, um, and probably good questions for about any scripture, but especially some of these more enigmatic parables are, what's going on? <laughs> Who are these people? What are the possible landmines that we might step into if we lean too hard somewhere because these parables are kind of quicksand a little bit. They don't let us, um, they don't create a, a stable environment, but actually a unstable environment, something that we have to keep moving our feet lest we start to sink or topple. And then uh, the other question was, what is the possibility here? What is, the, what is the good news? What are the ways that we join into this story and participate in it, or the ways that it disturbs us and knocks us off of our path? Um, when I was doing some commentary work on this, it's always, it's always kind of interesting when different commentaries all um, share like similar quotes. Uh, I don't know if they're using each other, if it's just this great conspiracy of these commentators, or if they're all just so confused that they're also looking at other comment commentaries, right? Um, but several commentaries, specifically around this parable, quoted the reformer Martin Luther, who said that sometimes you have to squeeze a biblical passage until it leaks the gospel. 
and squeeze it until it leaks the gospel. I don't think Martin Luther was a Floridian, um, but I think he has some of the same concerns here. What is going on? What are the landmines? What is the possibility and good news here? So I'm just going to kind of ask a question, some questions around these component parts, and hopefully it'll start to kind of slowly come into focus like a Polaroid picture. People know what Polaroid pictures are, right? Um, first, why vines? Why vines, Jesus? And Jesus is actually uh, dealing with a, a really verdant and, and powerful and known image in his, kind, in his time. Uh, uh, amongst good Jews like Jesus, he, he would have grown up reading the scriptures and knowing them well and probably being quizzed on them and studying and sitting at the feet of a rabbi. There is an image of a vine for Jesus' people, Israel. It is a vine that God has planted, God cultivates and prunes, God is responsible for. And so a vine is mostly a good thing, but it can be a good thing gone bad. Think about Isaiah 5. It is a, a love song for the vineyard. It, it, it views God, and, and maybe this is a new image for God, and maybe this, this image should cultivate us as God is this gardener who is singing to his plants. I, I almost imagine like the image of like giving them CO2 by his song, right? Um, breathing life into them. This, uh, this is a, a song for the vineyard. Let me sing for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it. He cleared away its stones. He planted it with excellent vines. He built a tower inside of it and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes. And then it kind of, the story turns, but it grew rotten grapes. You can see how some of this image is right underneath the surface, ready for Jesus to grab hold of it, to, to utilize it in some ways, to remix it in others, and to pull a trap door out from under his hearers. There, that song in Isaiah 5, when the rotten grapes start to grow, it, it keeps going, and it almost reads like a, like a modern Durham grocery list of like foibles and bad things. Um, like, like amazing things, like doomed to those who acquire house after house, who annex field after field, and there is no more space left for people. It says, doom also to those who, quote, wake up early in the morning and run after beer and stay up late to be lit up by wine. Let those who have ears here, undergrads, you're probably not here because this is too early. Um... He says, doom also to those who drag guilt along with cords of fraud and who rush God. Doom to those who call evil good and good evil, darkness light and light darkness, bitterness sweet and sweetness bitter. Oh, doom to those who consider themselves wise and clever. And my favorite, doom to the quote-unquote wine-swigging warriors. Again, if the shoe fits, right? Uh, other, other places this vine imagery comes up. Psalm 80. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we can be saved. You transplanted this wine 
the, this vine from Egypt and drove the nations out and planted it. God is making space for God's people. You, it says in verse 9, you cleared the ground for it and it took root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. This is like God's people are invasive. Like this is ancient Near Eastern kudzu that is happening and it's being praised, right? Its branches reach as far as the sea and it shoots as far as the river. It says, why have you broken down its walls? so that those who pass by can pick up its grapes. This is public domain vine. Boars from the forage ravish it. Insects from the field feed on it. This is all of creation rejoices in this flourishing vine. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourselves. You see, Israel has this deep self-identification with the vine. So who is the landowner? It probably seems apparent to us. God, probably, can we agree on that? I almost feel like we should do um, family feud, you know, like the top scores here. But we need to be careful here. This is not a great look for God, absentee landlord that it portrays him. Again, Jesus is doing these thought exercises with his people that, he's, that are listening to him. A few years back, there was some Indie Week reporting on the vast percentage of Durham that was being owned by those outside of Durham. This was kind of a, a pandemic phenomenon, uh, people snatching up properties from far away. And I think it's only kind of gotten worse since. I don't have great stats on it. But in the past 20 years, it's shifted from 65% of commercial land being held by owners in North Carolina to now about 75% of apartment, apartment buildings are owned by out-of-towners. It's a startling shift. It means that money and influence isn't located here and doesn't stay here. In the parables world, it's not difficult to see how there are negative effects of this sort of distance. Like I think of just a linkage just uh, as we've been talking about moving to the Lakewood Shopping Center, the front part of that shopping center is owned by an out-of-town landlord and uh, the back by the Scrap Exchange who is rooted and established and grown up in Durham. And it's startling the different kind of um, management of those two properties just right next to each other. Uh, it was kind of shocking recently that they uh, these out-of-town landlords for the first time in a long time invested something in the property. They just added new LED lights. And it was like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, they're, they're back, they're paying attention. What is going on? And this is also, um, in some of my experience, um, I'm on a board of a local nonprofit, Housing for New Hope, that um, is teaming with other organizations and individuals in Durham to, to help stem our affordable housing crisis and our homelessness crisis and uh, provide hope and housing to unhoused neighbors. And I'll tell you, one of the, the hardest things to do in Durham when you're trying to tackle this and trying to, to figure out how to have more inventory of housing is connecting with landlords because most landlords are very hard to connect with and most don't live here. And so we can see Again, this picture of God as an out-of-town absentee landlord who just kind of calls back every once in a while to see 
if the check is actually going to arrive is, a, is kind of problematic. It's a little strange. What is Jesus actually doing? We can ask those questions. Who are the, the messengers? Who is the servant in this story? I think actually answering this kind of relies on who Jesus' audience is. This is kind of a tense scene in Jerusalem. It's the last week in Jesus' life. There have been these Passover pilgrims that have come into town, so the place is kind of a powder keg. There are major religious leaders. They're hearing these words from someone who had just been welcomed into the city with palm branches and hosannas. So this is a political season that all this is happening. Every word from Jesus is being parsed and scrutinized, and everyone has a stake. The previous parable from this one dealt with questions of Jesus' authority. He was being vested with quite a voice by some voiceless peasants who were coming around him. So now he was navigating this world of power brokers who are both religious and political, and let's be honest, religious and political go hand in hand often. So Jesus began to speak of servants from the householder being killed. Their ears probably perked up. They said, oh, servants, we, that's, those are our people. And then later in the parable, they ascribe the, the title, this, this man to Jesus must be a prophet. Uh, there's this long lineage of prophets of God being killed for messaging the truth. These prophets stood from within the people and spoke on behalf of God. So there was this interchange, this dynamic, God and people. And so the prophet's words were often spoke as truth to power, actually truth from power to lowercase p, power, right? So this is contrasted with how powerful people often try to mobilize prophetic words against people to maintain or expand their power. The powerful both in and outside of their worshiping community should always have a complicated relationship with prophets. They were leaning into Jesus, trying to hear what he was saying, but often we lean out or we change the channel or we press mute when we start to hear prophets. We dismiss these words because they don't sound quite right to us or they might require something of us. God is calling the nations to repentance, calling the church to repentance. So if you ever hear a prophet, make sure you listen long enough for them to make you mad or uncomfortable. That's part of their vocation. It's prophetic um, comfort. In, in, in Isaiah, you get comfort, comfort my people, but you also get uh, prophetic energy, prophetic critique, um, uh, these are the things that are not aligning with the life with God. And so these, these servants in the story and then the, the subsequent messengers are these people kind of messing with what is going on in this place. They're, they're bringing new news and the people are given the choice whether to lean out or to lean in. So who are the tenants? Who are the people taking care of? Of this place. I think the tenants are probably God's people. Maybe. In the original hearing, they're Israel, a peculiar people called by God from among the nations to 
witness to the nations. Like as God's people go, so goes the world and creation. They're like the, the tip of the spear for salvation of the world. The test case, right? Um, they are blessed to be a blessing. Their whole origin, their whole purpose as God's people is, is to expand God's words reach and God's influence and, and God's blessing. So for God's people to begin to, to bottleneck these blessings of God, that's a problem. We, we see this narrative all over scripture. God's people become a, a stiff-necked people. They're unable then to look around with their stiff necks, to see the array and wideness of God's creation and the desire and love God has for its flourishing. It's hard not to contextualize this for our times and, and our calling as ones who are graciously grafted into this legacy as God's people, heirs with Jesus in, in Israel's vocation. We become something, um, we have then become something that we're never meant to be often in how we operate. We get too self-centered, too unimaginative, too ungrateful for the ways that God has called us and is using us. Once we were no people, now we're a people. After all, this is the God, not just of the universe, but of the nations. A God that wills that all would be saved and is preparing a feast at a really long table. Seems like the tenants in the story have forgotten this. So this parable of Jesus communicates some really strange things. It's a strange kind of againstness of God, who is actually Jesus being utterly for us. Here's kind of what I mean. For us, for Jesus to be for us, it means at times we need to be called onto the carpet that we can't continue in our sin. We can't continue in this way, walking away from God, and we need to repent and turn and come back to God. Just at the right time, Jesus died for sinners, died for us and with us, even as we just as likely be the ones in this story putting Jesus to death over and over, that, that we might be the ones that are blind, we might be the ones who are greedy, that we might be the ones who are violent. We might be the ones who think that there are no consequences for our actions. And, and Jesus' presence to us and his words for us confront that. Jesus is Lord and rules with grace and peace. In the, in the parable, this is where the, there's this scandalous use of scripture again by Jesus. He pulls out Psalm 118. Do we, do we remember Psalm 118 talks about this cornerstone? Yeah, every church building, find the cornerstone somewhere. It, it, it's normally like a different color brick that has a number probably inscribed in it when the building was built. I think there is a plaque here. I don't think there's an actual cornerstone. But Jesus takes that verse. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's become a really 
important verse for who Jesus knows himself to be or is, becoming, is coming to know himself to be. This is the, the, the piece of the puzzle that holds it all together. Does anyone get, is anyone into puzzle building with families? Do they do that on tricks? Does anyone have a family member that steals a piece of the puzzle so that they have the final piece? This is the chief cornerstone piece, the one that holds it all together. It is so unsatisfying to have a whole puzzle built in no last piece. And so uh, Psalm 118 and, and through Jesus is talking about this, this, this like ultimate or uh, like key piece. And Jesus says that uh, in, in himself that this piece is often hidden in plain sight to most of us most of the time. The Apostle Paul kind of picks up on this kind of surprise and this this like scandal in 1 Corinthians. And he talks about how this key piece to our faith, the cross of Jesus, something that has become so familiar, we wear it on our necks and, and our ears, and we, we have it on our walls. It's become in some ways so decorative, but it is the power of God for those being saved, but it is complete foolishness if you think about it more. It is, it is, it is uh, something that should trip us up sometimes in, in the ways that this cross, this instrument of torture, this uh, tool of empire's abuse and coercive power becomes the main part of our faith, the, the, the launching pad for our life with God. He says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified which is a, a scandal, a scandal to Jews, and it's utter nonsense to Gentiles. But Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. See how that works? A scandal in foolishness, God's power in God's wisdom. Foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In a sense, God gives us exactly what we need and want in precisely the ways that we've never asked for on our own. Ways that we can't often recognize or make sense of. God showing up in the form of Jesus, God going to the cross, something that makes us stumble, it's something that we often reject in the way we live rather than build on and grow in. So this parable begins to open this up. Jesus' last week of his life, it, it kind of sets the stakes of all this. This parable is, is wide and wild-eyed in this. The rejection of God's work in the world often seems so mild. We reject, our neighbors reject the love of God, and it seems like a small thing. It seems like we can take it or leave it, but this parable exposes that when we take it and when we leave it, there is violence associated with purging our lives of that sort of gentle grace. There are real consequences, flesh and blood stakes to rebellion and the hurt that it causes when we turn our backs on God, when we decide we want to do things our way. In fact, this parable itself <laughs> has been used throughout history in violent ways against Jewish people. 
Right now, there's a, a bloody conflict happening in Gaza, and we can imagine ways in which a parable like this could be used uh, about these occupying tenants in this foreign land, right? We can see that violence uh, is often centered around inheritance and who has the right to a place. So this parable also shows us that rejection of the Prince of Peace, again, the, the landholder's son, inevitably becomes unpeace. Nobody is immune from this kind of violence. So when we read this, we, we don't read it far away. We have to read ourselves into this parable. Read ourselves as people who reject the owner of the vineyard. People who are capable of killing God's messengers, his prophets. Capable even of the twisted logic that would kill God's son. So this is our story. This is the way that we reject the cornerstone and stumble over God's scandalous grace in his generative and present love. I think this is often really difficult for us to see. We're really good at turning like revolutionaries that we kill <laughs> into like people with a legacy as like nice harmless guys in our memories. Jesus kind of lives in in a pantheon with early Christians but also like latter religious figures like Gandhi or Oscar Romero or Martin Luther King. A couple quotable quotes. Maybe a Monday off of work. Some commemorative swag like a street named in your city or a postage stamp. But no recognition of why someone might want to kill them. Why someone would be so threatened by them that they would want to erase them. Jesus didn't die because he was nice. <laughs> to whitewash these legacies with Jesus is to fail to implicate ourselves in their deaths and to actually oppose their work rather than to join in on that work. It's to reject and to stumble rather than to build and grow. I think of um, Oscar Romero, this uh, priest in San Salvador who, who actually died after preaching a sermon and celebrating the Eucharist. He talks about the ways that we read scripture like this. He says, it's very easy to be servants of the word without actually disturbing the world. It's a very spiritualized word, a word without any commitment to history, a word that can sound in any part of the world because it belongs to no part of the world. It's a word that creates no problems or starts no conflicts. What starts conflicts and persecutions, what marks the genuine church is the word that burning like the word of the prophets proclaims and accuses. Proclaims to the people God's wonders to be believed and venerated and accuses of sin those who oppose God's reign so that they may tear that sin out of their hearts, out of their societies, out of their laws, out of the structures that oppress, that imprison, that violate the rights of God and of humanity. That's the hard service of the word. In a lot of ways, that's, that's what we're trying to do here 
at Oak in this place over a long period of time is, is read and live this word in this place. Not a word for any place and every place, but a word for this place at this time with these people. It, we can see in Father Romero's um, concerns, this word has to have roots in a place. It has to proclaim that's God's yes to us, but it also has to accuse God's no to our sin. This is the start of hope in healing, in hospitality. It's a recognition that it doesn't have to be this way, and the parables open up this new world that we can live in and walk around in. They hold out a very real possibility that something fruitful can still come. Something beautiful and sweet can still grow. For how kind of negative and pessimistic as it is about how people treat people and uh, just how people are, as this parable is, at the end there's still a possibility that there are, quote, a people who produce the kingdom's fruit. People who produce the kingdom's fruit. That's still a possibility. That's still good news. That's our calling, to join in the labor of the Spirit. And when you are connected to the Spirit, that's how fruit grows. Do you remember the Spirit's fruit? It's actually not a lot of different fruits. It's, it's kind of different flavors or manifestations of the same fruit singular of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law because in God's kingdom, they are the law. Fruit isn't automatic. It's not easily wrought or quickly made. I think of my friend at Food Lion, Joel. He's like the, one of the produce managers. And he always, like I asked him if he has something that I obviously don't see. He says, man, I don't make anything. <laughs> he, he just basically displays, right? Like, and, and that's a little bit of our process of growing God's fruit. We don't make anything. It's God who is making this stuff in us and us creating some of the, the chances and, and best conditions for this good fruit to grow. Fruit is the product of some forethought, planting, cultivation, good conditions for growth, guarding for harvest until ripe, discipline and discernment and steadfastness and anticipation. I think of like the early days of Oak Garden. Um, I think this was even like before Nan and Ed got here. Uh, it was the season when we were growing our first melons and we were guarding this watermelon with our life and someone stole it. <laughs> it was scandalous. People were like buzzing around so mad. And, it, and we had to remember like, what is this whole thing for anyways, right? Like we we're, we we're gonna cut that thing open and share it with whoever wanted it anyways, right? And then there have been other times at, uh, at that very garden where volunteer plants that we hadn't even planted or anticipated or expected, grew out of the back of the compost bin and grew these beautiful pumpkins and other things that we couldn't have grown better if we tried. You see, fruit can be surprising. Fruit can be 
strange. <laughs> Even unanticipated fruit, and sometimes, sometimes it is more tasty than the stuff that you've worked hard on or expected well. So to be, quote, people who produce the kingdom's fruit, I think it's just a, to be a people who are dead set on living verdant lives. That's like a $10 NPR word, right? Like verdant lives. Lives that promote life and growth and healing and more life. It, it, it's a, it, it's a, a personal like ethos of abundance, and it's doing that also together. It's a corporate ethos of abundance. That means there's always enough. If it doesn't seem like there's enough, let's think about how there's enough together or let's look around because there probably is more. It is, it, it is so diametrically opposed to some of the operating forces in this parable. Things like violence, things like scarcity, things like death. Fruit grows, and it's, it's a, a byproduct of health, like fruit comes from healthy plants, but also it promotes health. If you eat a lot of fruit and veggies, you're going to be healthy too. Fruit nourishes, fruit celebrates. I don't think you can have these fruits of the Spirit and be in a, like a fearful person, motivated by fear and scarcity and death. So friends, with Jesus, let's imagine a world beyond this kind of small world of the parable, this zero-sum world where <laughs> I need to get paid, I need to, I need to guard, I need to kill. Let's imagine something bigger with this owner of the vineyard, this, this God that we have who is not absent at all, who's immensely present for us and with us. It's a world that sinful greed and extractive violence are actually absorbed by the death of Jesus the Son and, and not put back out into circulation. Makes an end to retribution and makes inheritance and flourishing possible. It's a death that brings about life, which brings forth the realization of what the prophet Micah was saying. You guys probably know this from George Washington and Hamilton. Everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. That is this vision of growth and flourishing and health and fruit. This is the good news. God comes to us, God is with us, this God of justice, this God of flourishing, this God who entrusts us to play a part, entrusts us to participate in growth and in renewal, and this is a God who bears fruit in each of us, that we can contribute to the feast for others. Y'all pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for these tricky stories that we have to pause and step back and say, did I actually read that? Where am I in this story? What are you saying to me? What good word, what hard word? Lord, thanks for imagining 
um, imagining and, and making possible a world bigger than this world, bigger than the small worlds that we make. Thanks for growing fruit in us by your spirit, sometimes to our surprise. And help us, uh, help us notice that fruit in others. Give us eyes to see that we um, can see it and comment on it and commend each other for it and encourage each other um, for the ways that you're so generous in sharing with us. Lord, we thank you for all these gifts in Jesus' name. Amen.